Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hello, everyone. Uh, do we want to uh, hit on the hit on the big pressing sentencing uh, uh, decision of the, of the of the day? Noted American weirdo uh, <laughs> Roger Stone. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> like he's got he's got a lot of titles. Yeah, that's 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 probably appropriate. Well, Nixon tattoo haver haver. <laughs> yeah. I can't I can't tell you how many people that have been like, no, that tattoo is real. Like that's not a photoshopped picture of his back. Uh, we're alluding to Roger Stone, uh, President Trump uh, associate who was sentenced to forty months in in prison today. Uh, we briefly hit on this last week. We'll just keep briefly hitting on it at the beginning yeah. of shows because it's sort of moving too fast and it's yeah. happening on Thursdays. But yeah, from lying, like lying to Congress, and then I think Trump already sort of put out a, a statement that that alluded to a possible um, pardon or commutation when the process when he sort of like gets a full look there at was, the thing. There was the big controversy last week about the the DOJ stepping in and and uh, asking for a lighter sentence, which raised a lot of eyebrows. So. Um, it's a, uh, sort of a, sort of a messy story and I don't know if there's going to be much more on, unless the, uh, unless we see a pardon. So, yeah. Uh, but we do have an interesting show for you today. We, uh, Bill and I had a great conversation with our own Chris Villani about this sort of grassroots, uh, law student activist movement that is afoot, uh, started at Harvard and now, and it's now spread out to a couple different schools and they've, um, been asking many sort of very powerful big law firms to get rid of these very controversial employment agreements that we've discussed so often with forced arbitration and NDAs. Interesting stuff about the leverage that yes. uh, kids at, at very, very elite uh, law schools wield in those kind of situations. Yeah, yeah. It was good talk with Chris, as always. Um, but we do have some news to get to. Uh, we are, first of all, back on the employment grind this week. I feel like you're doing it just for me. I love talking. I know, about yeah, this. yeah. We were on we were on employment uh, in California again uh, yep. last week, and here we are again. Uh, the California Supreme Court uh, last week ruled in favor of a class of Apple store workers um, and said that the that Apple the company has to compensate these workers for the time they spend uh, getting their bags checked by security once their shifts are over, and so this clarifies a very important employment law question about you know sort of. What constitutes when you are actually, you know, quote, working for the company? You know, this is after they clock out of their shifts, but then they still have tasks to complete at the behest of their employer. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And these kind of cases do happen with some regularity because it sounds like if you're just a casual listener and you're like, how much time could that possibly be? Who cares about a couple of minutes? But when you multiply it out over so many workers that would need to be compensated, of course, the employers care a lot. And then the workers themselves, sometimes over time, it adds up to a lot of potential pay. There's another type of these cases called donning and doffing. Yeah, I love that you um, know that. Which I'm just really a fan of. But (laughs) You're you're donning always. Right. That's that's, that's always what you're doing. I'm referring to the fact that Bill's college friends call him Don, which I think I've mentioned before, but it's brings now me show canon. Love it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes, uh, and that yeah, that refers to people you know putting on uniforms and right. taking them off and things like that. Um, but yes, like I said, uh, the case here cent- uh, the centers on Apple's policy of after people who work at the Apple Store are done with their shift, they they clock out officially. But then they are subjected to searches by security of their bags to make sure that, you know, merchandise isn't being stolen from the store or other things like that. Um, 
a class of California workers sued the company, basically saying that they should be compensated for the time that it takes to undergo these bad bag checks. And to your point, Amber, uh, in some cases, you know, depending on you know how many people are working there and how many guards are available to do this type of stuff, they said it can take uh, up to forty-five minutes. That's a long to time to actually complete it. Um, and and like you say, maybe it's not always that way, but when you consider you know, the potential for lost wages among a very large group of people yeah. over a long period of time, it adds up, and that's why they sued. Um, so they initially lost in federal court a couple of years ago, and that was because the federal court, is actually Judge Alsup, who we talked about uh, last mm. week, um, uh, said, this isn't really, you're not really being subject to a company, you know, directive here because uh, you can, it's a, vo- you it's voluntary in the sense that you don't have to bring a bag. You can choose not to bring a bag, then you won't have to um, have this done. Mm. That They appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said, well, you know, a lot of people just take bags, and so it becomes sort of mandatory even if... It's a yeah. weird thing to say. It's, that, yeah. It, yeah, it's just like, you know, by, but for many reasons, people just travel with bags, and it's not fair of you to say this, but... It's on you to wear a shirt, man. Well, it kind of is. Yeah. They, they, they had the... They had the uh, they had sort of a an, an analog to you know they they might not require you to wear a jacket but if you it's cold outside right, you right. would be wearing one in any case um, so the Ninth Circuit though did kick it to the state court for a very important um, question sort of a it was a certified question sort of the term of art of weighing in on the specific question of the law which is to say does this time that you spend getting your bag checked qualify as uh, hours worked. That is the definition within the California wage law. And so, like I said, the Ninth Circuit kicked it to the Supreme Court, to the California Supreme Court, to answer that question. So, what did they weigh in on with that question? Like, what were the contours they were considering there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the they there's a couple of like sort of narrow definitions within the law that basically it comes down to whether or not employees are under the control of the company when they are doing this, you know, what may or may not be considered work, right? Right. And so... So much labor and employment law turns on, is the employer controlling you at that moment? That's just a central tenant that you have to figure out. Yeah. And uh, this week we got some clarity. Uh, The uh, state Supreme Court unanimously found that the company is, you know, effectively compelling workers to submit, you know, to these bag searches for the company's own benefit, because it is meant to prevent theft right. uh, and things, you know, and, and other stuff like that, and that they can be punished or dismissed for not submitting to them. And to the to the panel, this sort of fits very clearly within the law's definition of hours worked. Here's a here's a quote: The exit searches burden Apple's employees by preventing them from leaving the premises with their personal belongings until they undergo an exit search, and by compelling them to take specific movements and actions during the search. So, I mean, there you have it. They're saying the company is telling you you have to do this. Right. It's not opt-in, right? And we don't let you leave until you've done this. And that it, that sort of forecloses the analysis for them. Now, Apple uh, made a couple of arguments. One of the most sort of – one of the more creative ones was that they were – they floated the notion to the court that they could have done something far more drastic by saying, you know, you're not allowed to bring in any bags of any kind to work. But the fact that we allow <laughs> you to do that <laughs> – That is just – uh, that's well, just no, crazy. You got a nice, got a nice bag space. there. I would hate if something well, happened right. to it. I mean, the, the, the reason they argued that is because the question of who benefits from this action yep. is um, is important to the analysis. And they were saying, you know, you you know, being allowed to take your bag to work is essentially a benefit. Now, it also benefits us to make sure you're not stealing stuff. But anyway, they they they, they, they put forward a lot of different arguments. Uh, the court really was not buying that one, uh, referring to this you know potential ethereal bag ban. 
Uh, the court said, Apple has not imposed such draconian restrictions on its employees' ability to bring commonplace personal belongings to work. Under the circumstances of this case and the realities of ordinary 21st century life, we find far-fetched and untenable Apple's claim that its bag search policy can be justified as providing a benefit to its employees. I uh, mean, can you imagine working a place where they were like, you can't bring anything yeah, on Yeah, well, person. I mean, and they have to, I mean, you find this a lot where it's like, well, we could have gone a lot further, but <laughs> yeah. we didn't. And so, you know, this, but so anyway, they made their feelings very plainly known. Like I said, it was a unanimous ruling that said, you're under the control of the company. You are doing things at the company's behest. They literally don't yet, don't let you leave unless you do this. You're working hours at that point. Right. Amber mentioned that this is a thing that comes up a lot. It's a, it's sort of a, you know, a nuts and bolts question of employment law, this idea. Yeah. So, I mean, is this ruling, I mean, are there, are there, Sort of, are a lot of other companies going to be impacted by this? There's a lot of cases in the pipeline, and I guess just to to, to deal with the matter sort of at hand, um, we don't know how much Apple will be, um, you know, compelled to pay in back wages here, but we can guess that it would be pretty hefty because it covers uh, the the class is about twelve thousand strong at this point of workers, and it covers a period of several years. So we can we can reasonably guess that it will be a considerable figure, um, but uh, it also kind of underlines this this divide between California law and federal law with regard to security checks. The Supreme Court, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, that is, several years ago uh, ruled that the checks um, should not be compensable under the F- uh, FLSA. So this is sort of another example of like you know California being a bastion of very worker friendly laws that employers are going to kind of keep their eyes on. The other thing that the California State Supreme Court did um, is that it made very clear that the ruling was retroactive to, I think it was like mid-2009 was when this class um, uh, uh, is, is constituted. So that means there are, there are several other cases that deal with specific security clearance checks, and now the door could be open for them to pursue similar claims with a ruling like this on the books. It's going to be an all-Silicon uh, Valley show yeah. because our... Second story deals. We're going from Apple to uh, to Amazon. Yes, uh, but 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 a, but a different a different area of the law and very interesting. And we're moving across the country too. We went from a California court to uh, this one was in Philly. This is profoundly different, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. But we saw arguments this week in the Third Circuit, which is in Philadelphia, um, uh, in a super interesting case involving whether Amazon can be held itself can be held legally responsible for defective products that are sold by third parties on its platform. Um, yeah. It's that you know that's a wonky issue, but it's it's it the the arguments that we're going to talk about and hear a little bit from dealt with I think the the big super interesting question about you know how big of a presence Amazon is in in 2020 America. Anything with like e-commerce like is inevitably roping in like third party uh, or, or rather you know liability of the tech company with, re- yeah. with regard to third parties, yeah. and this is obviously a very interesting set of facts that we're going to talk about. Let's let's get into it a little bit. So there's this woman, um, Heather Oberdorf. Uh, she bought a dog leash on Amazon from a company called The Furry Gang, which I would like to note Alex is yeah, I mean, really struggling not to laugh about. This is, I mean, there's no, I mean, what happened to this woman is sad and, you know, this is a, we'll, we'll, we'll see what's going on. But I mean, it's called The Furry Gang. Right? What, what, what are we talking about here? Right. Anyway, it's apparently people who sell dog leashes. So Ober- Oberdorf uh, <laughs> claims that uh, the leash that she purchased from The Furry Gang uh, was was defective and um, her dog lunged forward. It snapped back. It hit her in the eye and um, blinded her. So very, very sad story yeah. there. Um, but so she wanted to sue the 
the seller uh, themselves, but th- that it was this obscure company that was somehow rooted in China, whatever. They couldn't be found to sue, so she moved to sue Amazon itself. There's one problem with that. Um, courts have typically not allowed for that to happen. In in most previous cases, courts have said that Amazon itself is not the seller mm-hmm. of of the product for the purposes of products liability law. Instead, it's it's just a platform. It's this you know conduit yeah. that that allows for uh, you know a third party seller to sell it to this woman. This is the new classified section of the newspaper. You know, right? Yeah. So um, w- what makes this interesting, and which is why we're talking about it this week, is that um, in in July the Third Circuit sort of broke with that. Um, uh, they they ruled that um, the, the Third Circuit Federal Appeals Court ruled that Oberdorf could, in fact, sue Amazon directly. The court ruled that under Pennsylvania, it was a took place under Pennsylvania state law, that under the state, the, the law of strict liability in the state of Pennsylvania, Amazon did, in fact, qualify as a seller who could be held legally responsible for the dangerous leash. The quote from that ruling in July Although Amazon does not have direct influence over the design and manufacture of third-party products, Amazon exerts substantial control over third-party vendors. So um, Amazon, somewhat unsurprisingly, quickly appealed the ruling uh, to the en banc court, the full court, all yeah. the judges of the Third Circuit, um, to rehear it, warning that it was, you know, that it was this pretty significant change. And from everything I've been able to gather, it, you know, it would be a pretty significant change to start holding Amazon liable for this, regardless of the the policy reasons yeah. for yeah, it. Yeah, there's um, really interesting things to consider here, though. So, regardless of how this one turns out, and we'll kind of get into what happened in arguments, but I just think it's interesting to think about: Does Amazon just have so much control in our culture now and yeah. over people that are selling things that? It's not like a normal just marketplace platform anymore. Right. Yeah, and and if you're gonna if you're gonna sort of break new ground in that regard, then you gotta you know they they, they are saying that they they hold substantial sort of power over who gets on the platform, and right. then you know there you you can imagine a world of like judicial tests of the amount of control you must demonstrate to bring us such a claim. I mean, it I could think, get very, I mean, that doesn't mean it's not worthy of like, you know, exploring, yeah. but it's, it's it's very, very thorny. I think this kind of stuff has come up for other behemoths in the past, like Walmart, where there's been yeah. questions of they have really, um, they will just tell a manufacturer, like not something that's a Walmart brand, but like just a mainstream manufacturer, mm-hmm. like yeah. we'll only carry X type of whatever that you produce. Right. Sure. And if you don't sell in these big places, it's like, you don't exist at yeah. all anymore yeah. in current culture. So yeah, um, but so yeah. so the full court eventually did uh, uh, decide to rehear this ruling in July. Um, you know, took that off the books, yeah. and when full en banc courts agree to rehear a case, it it's very rare. Yeah, it's a um, big deal, and it it means that you know it allows them to to undo previous precedents and you know really make new law on on a question. So it's always a big a big deal, and they heard oral arguments this week. Um, the normal sort of caveats apply for oral arguments that it's kind of hard to read the tea leaves. They're they're often probing well, things well, that they agree with. Well, that never stopped us before, right? But yes, the caveats. <laughs> but here we apply. go. But, but, but the caveats uh, apply. Yes, um, the caveats do apply. Uh, but so there, there was an interesting moment with um, where where you know some of the judges were were you know expressing skepticism about Amazon's defenses about why it shouldn't be held liable. Um, one of the main thrusts of Amazon's defense is that um, you know that it doesn't have enough control. We were we were talking about control earlier. Yes, um, that it lacks the the sort of real control or influence over third party sellers, um, and that that because of that, you know, holding the company liable won't 
it won't have the policy impact that you think it will. It's mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, when it looks at these things about whether or not to hold people liable, you know, whether or not it would have that safety impact that you're yeah. that you're looking for is an important question. Um, Amazon's argument didn't seem to sit well with U.S. Circuit Judge Kent A. Jordan, who um, who said it seemed like Amazon, in, to the contrary, influence has a has a vast influence over the market and what kind of things could get out there to consumers because the idea is that sellers will, and this is was, was what the judge said, that sellers will do just about whatever Amazon says to get onto that platform because being on the platform is so, so valuable to them. So how is your, how is your policy argument not actually working against you? you Amazon is the, not the 800-pound gorilla, it's the 8,000-pound gorilla. It's got more influence than anybody else on that basis, since it's active in supplying the market, why shouldn't it be the one that you look to to say, well, you can really influence what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, this happens a lot in different parts of corporate law, but it's like when certain powerful companies come before the court on specific narrow questions, then they're all of a sudden kind of saying, well, I don't have, I, I can't possibly be in charge of all of this. Right. Like this, this judge has a different view, it, it would seem. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and it raises big, it raises big policy questions. The Certainly. I, one of one of Amazon's big points is that this this just isn't a thing that a court should be doing. This is a, you know, this is a legislative, legislative. question mm-hmm. and um, classic, right? Um, but so uh, it's it's and we should say, you know, uh, the the attorneys for the plaintiffs got got tough questions too. It was a long hearing involving many judges, but um, but it was you know it was an interesting moment there with um, that sort of. Uh, about how the, the you know what what role Amazon plays here, um, it, we should see a ruling from the court in the next few months. Um, there the, there is the the alternative possibility that they will push this to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court again. A thing we were just talking about. Certified in the last question. Story. There you go. It's a, yeah. um, because it is such an integral question mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania uh, of state law. law. So mm-hmm. um, uh, we will see. Groundswell of activism within the country's elite law schools has put big law on notice. The movement, led by students from Harvard, Yale, NYU, and others, has already convinced a number of powerful firms to abandon their controversial employment agreements. And now, the students are beginning to set their sights even higher. Here to talk us through these developments is Law 360 Massachusetts court reporter Chris Villani. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, always great to have you on the show. This is a really interesting story. Let's talk about this. This movement that I was referring to is called the People's Parody Project. Uh, just walk us through who they are and what they've done so far. Sure. So they started actually as the Pipeline Parody Project. They changed their name uh, at some point midstream, I think, when the focus started to, to broaden a little bit. But it's a group of Harvard Law students started very, very small. There were two organizers uh, Vail Conner Young and Molly Coleman, both now three L's at Harvard, who started this when they were in their first year at Harvard Law School. And the big focus at first, as you referenced there, was on the coercive employment contract. So non-disclosure agreements, uh, forced arbitration as a condition of employment at big law firms. And they started uh, setting their sights on Kirkland & Ellis. That was where this began. They were the biggest law firm 
they had uh, at the time a mandatory arbitration provision. And within just a few weeks of their hashtag dump Kirkland campaign, they were able to get that firm to abandon arbitration for their associates and that eventually for all staff, whether right. it was uh, somebody who uh, was a paralegal, a custodian, yeah. uh, other employee at the firm didn't matter. So the movement has sort of expanded. Uh, Yale has jumped on board. There's a chapter at Georgetown. They just opened one at Washington University, St. Louis, uh, University of Michigan. And their goal within the next two years is to be embedded in at least 10% of ABA accredited law schools across the country. So to be clear, just for the listeners who don't super know this issue, Walk us through what the you know what what the you know the, the issue with the the use of these agreements. I think you know I, I think we've we've talked about it on the show a little bit, but yeah. um, uh, you know what what is the um, why are they problematic to uh, to to these folks? Yeah, well, this is all in the the context of the broader Me Too movement, right? So the idea of and it's not a, a universally held opinion i've written about this quite a bit in the last two years and, and some feel that arbitration gets a bit of a bad rap but uh, the idea that non-disclosure agreements and forced arbitration uh, agreements are tools for powerful corporations or in this case law firms to hide harassment discrimination issues yeah. potential sexual misconduct that's a, that's the crux of the argument that PPP is making is that you shouldn't have to sign away your right to go into a court to have a dispute, an employment dispute or harassment issue or discrimination issue addressed um, just as a condition of working at a law firm. Most law firms, uh, I, I did a survey of this probably about a year ago, most law firms don't have them or they have carve outs for uh, harassment or discrimination issues, but many law firms, including some big ones, still do. I think the fascinating dynamic here that we talked about before we decided to, you know, have you on the show and talk about this again is that the the dynamic here of, um, you know, the leverage that that these students wield in this situation. You know, it's not just undergrad students, you know, making a ruckus about something they don't like. These are really sort of potentially powerful attorneys who are recognizing that they have that that power to wield in these kind of negotiations. Yeah, and, and some uh, analysts look at it and say, in a lot of ways, they have more leverage now than they might have 10 years from now after they've become uh, embedded in a firm. Um, they're in a position where they uh, are trying to make partner. They're looking at advancing up the corporate chain, and maybe there are other um, parts of the equation that take away from their desire simply to pursue this uh, social equity or, or, or justice goal. But now they're free agents, right? They're heading out into the world as three yeah. L's or yeah. young lawyers, and they're looking uh, at trying to uh, use that power, use that leverage that they have and say, okay, if, if you're not going to whatever firm, you're not going to uh, require this mandatory arbitration provision, I'm more likely to go with you than to go with a firm that does. So it, it is, as much as they, are, uh, they have individual power as they create a groundswell here, it's something that could uh, potentially affect the way that law firms do business. And it's, it's something we've seen play out in similar ways in the past. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that. It's a truly fascinating dynamic that they recognize that they are highly sought after and that they can they can throw their weight around a little bit when they when they go out on interviews and decide where they want to bring their talents. Um, but you wrote a little bit. There is some precedent for organization of the, like that that takes this general shape, right? 
Yeah, and the most obvious example is is pro bono work. And while firms have done pro bono work for a long time, if you go back 30 years or so, it wasn't like it is now. You all know, and I get them too. We get the press releases every week. Look at us. Look at the pro bono work that we did. Please, please write about us. We love you, Law360. So (laughs) highlighting pro bono work in those ways and uh, really touting it and competing for pro bono work was not the way that it was 30 years ago. But law students in interviews started saying, this matters to us. What do you do for pro bono? What kinds of pro bono work might I be doing? What types of areas are you involved in? So when that next generation of employees started telling them this matters to us and started saying it in interviews, firms started changing their practices. And I think the next version of that is probably going to be these NDAs and uh, forced arbitration agreements, whatever firms think of them, and, and some might be dropping them or changing policies uh, against what they would rather do, but they recognize that this is literally the future of their firm and their ability to go tell their clients, we recruited X number of the yeah. top students from these law schools, and to the extent that's going to matter to clients and matter to firms, um, they do need to, in some cases, capitulate to what these students want. So these students have had success on the on on that front uh, that you were just explaining, but we've also seen in the last few months efforts to push this a step further to dealing with uh, with 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 clients and with bigger issues. Can you walk us through that? Sure. And the one that uh, has really jumped out recently is uh, Paul Weiss and its representation of Exxon. And the Harvard, again, this was sort of in conjunction with People's Parity Project. And I think there's definitely the Venn diagram of people involved in these Paul Weiss Exxon protests and those involved in PPP might just be one circle. But uh, it's not officially a, a PPP uh, movement. It's it's the dump Exxon movement. And they've disrupted these recruiting events. The first one was at a swanky Cambridge uh, restaurant not too far from Harvard. There was one at Yale down in New Haven. There was one um, that Law360 covered uh, just a week ago at NYU right. at a, a restaurant in, um, I think, on the Lower West Side, right down the street from uh, the, the yeah. mothership of Law360, as it were. And there was one at the University of Michigan uh, just yesterday. So, they're continuing to um, speak out, and this is about climate change and Exxon's, um, they allege, contribution to uh, this this global crisis, and it's something that they uh, feel very, very passionately about. It is, however, a different issue in a lot of ways, yeah. I think, and in the, the analysts and experts I've spoken to. Uh, it's a much different issue than the forced arbitration or non-disclosure issue, which is essentially an HR policy. Now we're yes. talking about something that affects the bottom line. And there are different ethical questions with it, too, right? Because if you make the case that everybody deserves, uh, is entitled to, to zealous representation, sure, yeah, that has to extend from the very bottom of the food chain all the way up to the very top of the food chain. And that's why even those who are very much on board, like, for example, Claire Pastor at USC, who I spoke to for my most recent piece, Mm -hmm. she was very on board with the idea of getting rid of these NDAs and and the movement that uh, the PPP is pursuing there. But as a legal ethics professor, she was very wary of the idea of attacking a law firm based on the client or clients that it chooses to represent. Yeah, and you know, like like any grassroots movement, there's there's always a period of sort of 
internecine, you know, you know, deciding about what is what is and is not a priority. And uh, in that regard, I mean, Chris, we'll, we'll we'll get you out of here on this. We thank you for your time as always. Um, what does the future of this movement look like? You hinted at it a little bit at the top, but I mean, what's sort of the mm-hmm. what's sort of the next step for this group of students? Well, they had their first, um, I guess you could call it a convention uh, in Washington, D.C. just a week ago. There were representatives from uh, more than a dozen law schools. It might have been pushing two dozen law schools. Pipeline Parity actually paid for the whole thing because they didn't want costs to be uh, something that would be a barrier to people attending. Yeah. And they talked about activism. Uh, they talked about um, things like bird dogging, you know, pursuing, doggedly pursuing um, uh public officials in, yeah. in uh, other types of, of movements or other types of actions, I, I should say, that you associate with a labor movement or that you associate with activism. So I think base building, messaging, sort of organizing on that level. And then there's a very uh, regimented plan for how many law schools they want to get into. As the ultimate goal is 10% within two years of ABA accredited law schools. So that's the next goal is, is building this sort of critical mass to go beyond just some rabble rousers at a handful of schools to a genuine movement that has to make the industry, whether firms choose to change their policies or not, stand up and take notice of what's happening. So there is a sense of of being very organized and wanting to build this groundswell, again, to to, uh, have enough law students on board that firms say, we, we can't ignore this. Too many people are coming in and saying, it matters to us what your policies are on non-disclosure agreements, on course of contracts. And they're also interested, I think, expanding into sort of the access to justice yep. field and, and making sure that, because I think a lot of these lawyers, some of them will go into big law, of course, but many will be pursuing um, you know, endeavors that are more in the, the social justice and access mm-hmm. to justice space. So that's a big part of what they're doing as well. But the course of contract thing, I think, is going to be continue to be uh, one of their biggest focuses, along with building that message and then just building strength in numbers. It's a remarkable development in uh, legal academia. And uh, Chris Villani, thank you so much for uh, talking, uh, talking it through with us. Always great to have you on the show. Happy to come on anytime. like to end our show with something offbeat and bill i think you have an ip one to talk about today <laughs> yeah it's a lot of a lot of cutting edge ip law here so that's that's um, that, that's one way to describe what's going on uh here. did you guys know that judges don't want you to respond to the potential of huge damages rulings uh by saying lol i mean th- i mean that th- stands that's, to reason that's well that's how i cope with a lot of news both good and bad uh, every day of my life. One of the many reasons good, I didn't become a lawyer. Yeah, apparently, it's a good thing. Apparently, like you say, they look down on this. I didn't actually know that. This is enlightening to me. A New, a New Jersey federal judge issued a sort of explicit warning to uh, to that to that effect this week um, to an e-cigarette company that was sued by Juul. So there's this company called 4X Pods, and Juul sued them for um, selling infringing, uh, I think, sort of tie-ins to Jules e-cigarettes. Yeah, and um, Jules yeah. like the big one that people have heard of. It's the big and... one. Uh, lots of you see people where they look like little people, thumb, thumb drives, the youngs. Yeah, yeah young <laughs> right. folk, the youth of America and right. other countries, I suppose. Right. Vaping. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, so uh, they filed this lawsuit and that led to discovery, which, as we all know, uh, inevitably led to um, very unfortunate emails being dredged up. It's always bad for one company or another, but it's great for journalists. Like um, fun things come out of some of these discovery right. Requests. Don't write stuff down, guys. Just say it to each other. I scrub my <laughs> chats with Bill at the end of every day. It's right. great. That's really smart, and I'm glad to hear it. We're not recording. So, yes. So the the we'll get to a little bit more in a second. But some of the, so it just just to like sort of color what these what what the judge was trying to illustrate. Um, he started quoting from this, and one of them from a guy involved in this defendant company said, "Even if we lose the lawsuit, I will never sign a check to Jewel." Or ever pay them. We'll declare bankruptcy before that. So nice. only attorneys getting paid here. This is like one of those, um, you're not supposed to say that out loud kind of moments. Saying the quiet right? part loud, bro. Yeah. Right. right. Just say it to each other. <laughs> yeah. Go say it over drinks, you know, sure. maybe turn on the fan and uh, and say it to each other. Yeah. Um, do the mob stuff. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so there was this other series of, of messages that the judge quoted in the ruling this week. Um, it was a series of messages between. Uh, the one of these these guys involved in the company and um, uh, a supplier in China. The guy was uh, Mr. Grishayev. Was the the guy? Um, He's uh, the supplier. No, no, no. He was the the the, the defendant. Oh yeah, here. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, should we do a dramatic? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. You want to do this? Is like a very electric email exchange about facing. <laughs> you litigation. be Mr. Lou. Okay, I'm Mr. Lou. I'll be playing the role of Grishayev. <laughs> I'll be Bill Donahue. I'll be Grishayev, and I want you to take some some risky acting choices here. Oh, well, I mean, you really put me under the gun here. Okay, uh, Alex Lawson, a a noted actor. Yeah, for uh, like a year and a half in college, it was great. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh, so okay. I can't start wait us for off. This. So I'll, yeah, I'm Mr. Lou. Uh, here we go. Worst case. You stop this project and working on others, even if you lose the lawsuit. Nah, lawsuit? I don't care. Just care for FDA. You move your money away and apply for bankruptcy. Yeah. Then start of a new company. I'm not worried. You can even still have the same company. LOL. Even with bankruptcy here in the USA. Thank you. This is, I mean, so I feel like every episode of Pro needs a dramatic uh, reading. Is there, is there any way that I could like redo that one? I, I just think I, there's some, <laughs> there's some stuff I could have tweaked. I had some, um, I had some pauses. Yeah, I don't well, really know. The, we, we are now the Pro Se players. Which is the the official acting Se company. So here's, here's how the judge wrote the ne- literally the next sentence after that transcript. Jewel was understandably alarmed by these messages. Yes. Um, so, uh, unsurprisingly, Jewel moved for uh, asset freezes and other restraining orders to say, look, like, they're, you know, we're filing this lawsuit because we allege that they're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're basically saying, even if we are doing something wrong and we lose, you're Who never going to see a dime. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, they, the judge this week... Um, Denied that the 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 motions for um, Jules motions to you know freeze assets and yeah. for other restraining orders, but he wanted to make clear that this was not sort of um, a, an approach to litigation that he was condoning. The quote: "Defendants should not come away from the foregoing with the impression that the court is naive or that it will tolerate LOL as an appropriate reaction to its orders and judgments." Defendants have been slow walking discovery. The piecemeal emergence of these Skype messages may suggest a motive for that strategy. The messages suggest a dismissive and cavalier attitude toward the prospect of liability for trademark infringement. The sense is not that defendants believe they are not infringing. It is that 
is that they, in Mr. Grishayev's words, don't care about this lawsuit because they have already reaped huge profits and never intend to pay the potential judgment. You know, we read a lot of a lot of the words that judges have to write in various orders. Um, there's so many that I like, but this is going to go high on my list. I love that a judge had to be like, don't LOL at me. It's just so good. <laughs> I bet when they read this opinion, there was a new round of intercompany messages where they said, wow, sure. we are wrecked. <laughs> so I think, as always, the takeaway is to just, you know, if you're gonna if you're going to do maybe bad stuff, Potentially bad stuff, allegedly bad stuff. Just don't write it down. Just you know, way ahead this of you. is this is a companion to our common maxim of don't tweet. Yeah, this don't is ever very tweet. similar. Don't Skype, I guess is the, is <laughs> yeah. the takeaway. Don't Skype. There you go. All right. Good lesson. Thanks, guys. See you again next week, guys. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Chris Villani, and contributing reporters, Ben Greary, Jeannie O'Sullivan, and Tiffany Hoop. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. That's how other people find our show. For more information about anything we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.